Hello and welcome to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast sat firmly in the grey maybe of Tamriel, and proud member of the Robots Radio Podcast Network. My name is Aramithius, and today we're looking into one of the most successful and definitely one of the most technologically advanced cultures on Tamriel. They've built spaceships, conquered most of the continent, and had a ruler who was birthed out of a hill. Today we're asking, what have the Romans ever done for us? Before we get to that though, I just want to say thank you ever so much to my new patrons. I think I've managed to miss out um, saying thank you to my patrons on my last episode, and there's been a good few of them. So thank you ever so much to McUltra, Ryan Goody, Zolanthrus, Stan, and William Weiser for supporting me in this show. If you want to become my patron and get exclusive access to my notes, as well as early access to all my content, go to patreon.com forward slash written in uncertainty. I really appreciate everything that my patrons do for me, the comments that I get, the pointers, the feedback, the support, as well as the ability to run this podcast without any real cost to me and just keep everything running. So thank you ever so much to all of my patrons, both old and new, for everything you do and keeping this thing going. And I'm also in a bit of a period of self-reflection and re-evaluation of what's going on with this podcast. So I've got a survey up and running on SurveyMonkey. If you want to say a few things about what you think about Written Uncertainty, where you found it, how you listen to it, and where you think it could go in the future, please, please go to the SurveyMonkey survey that I've got going and fill that out. There is a link in the show notes and the URL is www.surveymonkey.co.uk forward slash r forward slash bbgzk2z although I really don't expect any of you to be able to remember that by the end of this episode. So, what have the Romans ever done for us? Just a quick disclaimer before we get going, this is my opinion on what the Roman Empire is and how it's worked, what it's done, and there's probably far more information out there that I haven't covered, and I, I know I haven't covered the Fourscore War in anything approaching any amount of detail in this cast, so you may have very different opinions on what you think that they've done, how they think they work, and so on. So please, please let me know what your opinions are wherever you're listening to this podcast or drop me an email at writtenanuncertaintypodcast at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter at Aramithius or join the Written Uncertainty Discord. There's links to all of that in the show notes for this episode. So just drop me a line there and you can also find all of the references and a transcription of this episode at writtenanuncertainty.com forward slash podcast forward slash Roman. And one final thing before we get going, I am currently preparing to do a question and response episode in about two weeks time. So please email me with any and all of your queries, tweet me, uh, send me a voice recording. There should be a link if you go to the anchor version of this podcast to send a voice recording over and or you can just find me wherever you can and just attach a sound file somewhere and I'll do my best to answer as many of those as I can. Well, 
answer, respond to. I don't promise that there'll be anything definite about the things that I say, but I will definitely look into it for you. And so, right, let's kick off with Rahman and start with who Rahman Cyrodiil was. He was the founder of the Second Empire, and he has a whole bunch of interesting feats about him. I had thought to split this into the mythic and historical stuff, but it actually dovetails quite nicely with the various stages of his life, so we'll just go through it chronologically. And so to start with, Rahman had something of a mystical birth, if I can put it that way, at least if you believe the official story. Uh, the text, the Ramanada, claims that Rahman was born after King Hrol from beyond the lands of Lost Twill, to quote the text, had a vision of Alessia, chased it, and then had sex with it, and also into a hill in the process. And Rahman was then born out of the earth with the Amulet of Kings embedded in his forehead. <laughs> Taken literally, this sounds incredibly weird, but there's a whole bunch of mythic confluences that make it seem reasonably plausible. Although, as we don't know an awful lot about Rahman's first years, then it could quite easily be a construct of his later reign and just a myth-making machine somewhere in the background. One of the big claims that I do want to talk about is that the Ramada says that he, quote, spoke as an adult saying, I am Cyrodiil, come. That's pretty much the line that defines Rahman Cyrodiil. And so I want to unpack what that means after I've delved into a bit of uncertainty about his origins. There's been some doubt thrown on it through his various sources, though, if you know where to look. Uh, the Book of the Dragonborn, of all things, says this, quote, There's also no evidence that Raman Cyrodiil was descended from Alessia, or there are, there are many legends that would make it so, most of them dating from the time of Raman and likely attempts to legitimise his rule. For there to be something that needs legitimising, there must also be an illegitimate truth to it, if I can put it that way. And there is something of doubts in the stuff you'll find in the games, texts like that. But the most definitive stuff that we can talk about for what Roman's birth could have been is some unofficial stuff. Uh, there was a fair amount of shade that got thrown at the Remonada's account by Kurt Coleman, one of the Bethesda developers, in a particular series of forum posts that were made under the Hashvat Antabolus persona that Kurt used to have. And in particular, there was this line from the forum user Prowler, which Hasfat agreed with, quote, King Hrol was well known for his appetites for young girls. The Raman mythology sprouted from the initial embellishment of his transgressions with the shepherdess Sed Yenna and his death due to exhaustion. As such, Raman is not the god that later myth-historical revisionists make him out to be, but rather a bastard son of Skyrim. In the preceding years, Sed Yenna cleverly used the fabricated myth and knowledge of Roman's true origins as political leverage to attract and employ various factions in the imperial city to support Roman as a proxy king. Hence that, according to the myth, none objected when Roman was brought to the throne. That would certainly explain why we know next to nothing about Roman's early history if there was none of note and it was all invented later. Hashfat and possibly Kurt himself agreed with the idea that taking things literally shouldn't be done here. Uh, there's also a line in the Shoni Etta 
unlicensed text that references a character called El Estia as the, quote, true mother of Raman, in the same breath as saying that he was, quote, conceived of the imperial earth. That would point El Estia as the original mother of Raman rather than said Yena, but that also disproves the official account. And that letter element, though, has altogether too much thematic tastiness for it not to make me want to take it semi-seriously. First, there's the idea of the connection between the king and the land, particularly with regards to Alessia. Alessia gets identified with the land of Cyrodiil itself by the prophet of Anvil in the Elder Scrolls IV. He calls her, quote, the earth that is Al-Esh. And that's echoed with Raman's I am Cyrodiil come line. He is the land or the people of the land. If you think back to the last episode, Cyrod is the land, Cyrodiil is the people. So Raman is the manifestation of the people of the land, which is also reflected in his name. The name Raman literally means the light of man. So if he's the light of man, the hope of man, he is the personification of a lot of stuff, then he is also the land and the province inhabited as well, which also links to some of the stuff with the Amulet of Kings, which I'll get to a bit later. To go a bit further down the rabbit hole of Raman's origins, uh, the developer Michael Kirkbride, or ex-developer Michael Kirkbride, posted this in a forum thread, to quote, Bonus. King Hrol, seeker slash healer of kingdom, from the land beyond Lost Twill, Twill as Twilight, Grey maybe, Arabis. His knights numbered 18 less 1, the number of the hurling disc. Space gods, Brigat Raman, news at zero sum, Pacific standard gradient. This means that... To translate that a little bit, this means that Raman is possibly the child of another Kalper or something similar. Uh, the Reddit user CENext has a fantastic join the dots piece on the Tesla subreddit that connects the whole thing into being the land himself. They point out that King Hrol is the past if we take the idea that the lands beyond Lost Twill being the past before the Arabis, before the Grey maybe, and that... I think is also likely because of how Hrol's knights are portrayed. They are western sons, so to speak, and their name checks to both Anvil and Deodil and the others, which means Colovia and western Cyrodiil. However, the west of Tamriel, Yokuda, is also the past in some ways of thinking, so if we associate that, the idea of the west as the past more generally, then it's possible that Hrol and his knights are not just from beyond the Arabis, but also from the past of the Arabis, so a previous Kalper, maybe? CE next then makes the point that Hrol is the past, and then the present that is Alessia, as in the present Kalper, makes the future that is Raman. And that's why Raman is Cyrodiil come, that he is a personification of the land, a child of the land that is a personification of the future. There's also some very bizarre stuff in CNX's post that points out that the language around Hrol, his name, actually means hill. So he's potentially a hill making love to another hill and its land 
smashing into an, another piece of land, creating a new type of land. So Roman announcing he is Cyrodiil come is saying that he has arrived as a new thing, a new entity, a new king and a new land. If we want to go along the lines of the Fisher King here saying that the health of the king and the health of the land are tied together. And so when one is well, the other is well, because the two are intimately connected. Roman is checking all those boxes in how this kind of mythic conception is coming about. And if you dig beneath the surface a bit, there's even more to it than that. And the hill where Roman was allegedly found was Sancrator, which is where Alessia was buried, along with the Amulet of Kings. Now, being born from within that hill gives Roman the amulet from his location, and it also adds a bit more legitimacy to his rule. The story of the Romanada about having the amulet embedded in his head also makes him a part of the amulet, or the amulet a part of him. And that relationship links him to the oversoul of emperors, so to speak, that is supposedly contained within the amulet. If you look at where were you when the dragon broke, that text implies that conversations can be had with the different souls within the amulet. And if Roman had that possibility from birth, then he's been having those voices, all those spirits influencing him from day one or before day one even. Now that that idea reminds me of Abominations from the Dune series, the pre-born Bene Gesserit that grew in the womb with all the voices of their entire female ancestry present in their heads. Those children also emerge from the womb fully conscious and speaking. I can't help but see Roman as something similar, but with the oversoul of emperors talking to him, giving him that pre-birth awareness. Uh, if that's what happened, it makes him a form of gestalt consciousness almost, an expression of all the rulers that have come before. And if you think about Pelennol possibly as being an expression of the Amulet of Kings, Pelennol screamed praises to Raman, and so there's possibly that connection there. And But just to get back to the main point, that if Raman is that gestalt consciousness, he and possibly all who wear the amulet are an expression of Cyrodiil itself or themselves if we take Cyrodiil to mean the people rather than the land of Cyrod. The ties between Dune and Roman feel like they get stronger with the Shoni Etta text which is um, an unlicensed piece of work by Michael Kirkbride that talks about Roman's upbringing in frankly very explicit and violent terms there's quite a few bits of symbolism in there that make it interesting to see how roman is considered as a mythic figure and so we'll be looking at it a bit here um to start off with though we are going to go with a relatively mundane note is that shoni et and said yenna who were sisters according to this text were the ones who raised roman quote, in the ways of the Nibbanese. Roman was a child of Western Cyrodiil, remember, Colovia, and a Colovian being brought up as a Nibbanese symbolises both elements of Cyrodiil, being a unity in one person that is another form of Cyrodiil personified. And now on to the weird stuff that gets a little explicit, so be warned from here. 
as well as representing Cyrodiil, Roman is also potentially tied to Anu and the forces of Stasis by the Shoni Eta in a way that we haven't really seen before. If, if you're prepared to trust that text, then it has his midwives slash actual wives, they're one and the same thing, gather up his semen and bake it into bread that Roman is then fed. Now, this is done so that he can be, quote, light made man and order, fed ever by the seed of first stasis, Anon Anu. This feels a little weird, as we can associate Hrol with creation quite directly, both in the act of implanting the land with seed and penetrating the ground, which is, as well as an act of procreation, a reenactment of the Adamantine Tower. Akatosh pierces none with that tower at the point of convention. So, Raman being associated with stasis rather than creation seems just weird given that kind of genesis for him. Unless we take it that it's a reference to Sij, which is the time that Anu did something. If you go by, I think it was Vex Teaching that says that. That would work and links Roman with perhaps the most mystical moment of creation because Siege was supposed to be something impossible. Anu as Stasis wasn't supposed to be able to do anything, which is why Siege is so weird. And if you think about that as a creation or an unnatural creation or something perfect or maybe we can go as far as immaculate conception, then you can start linking that with Roman as well because he was linked with a very, very strange form of conception. And we can also potentially get the fluids themselves, the actual semen connected with stasis. Just bear with me a second here. We could almost see that as being regenerative or maintaining youth if we take the idea of what sperm used to mean and represent, the idea of it as seed so to speak. Quite a few uh, older traditions tied to um, various religions consider sperm to contain the whole essence of life, uh, literally a mini person, which was then implanted in a woman, which was then incubated and grew. There was no combining of two people in that understanding. And that's why it often gets called seed in those sorts of situations. It gets planted in the right place and it grows. And it also gets associated with fundamental essence and vitality for similar reasons. So with that understanding of what sperm is, how it can possibly work in a mystical sense, then if you're consuming that, then you could be seen as restoring your vitality with it or storing it up or potentially even taking yourself back into yourself as a form of replenishment. But that's purely me speculating. There's no real confirmation of what that's meant to mean, either from Kirkbride or anywhere else. To cap all of that off, we also have a possible association with Sanguine in the unlicensed text, the Imperial Census of the Daedra Lords, which claims that Sanguine lived in the White Gold Tower during Roman Cyrodiil's rule. With the Shoni Eta claiming that Roman could ejaculate, quote, without hands and mention of a particular Dibellum priesthood, this feels like all things that Sanguine has involved with him as well. This got 
things to do with his blood turning into brandy and all sorts. So quite where Dibella ends and Sanguine begins within that whole context, I'm not really sure. Although the Shoni Etta does also remind me a bit of Dune again in how it presents that because the Dune series holds sex and breeding very highly. It's very important within the way that that series works. The idea of perfect bodily control is presented is part of how the Bene Gesserit work, which feels a little bit like the line of Dibellum priests that the Shonietta mentions. Bringing things back down to relative normality, um, Roman Cyrodiil was noted to be dragonborn in various places, most particularly at the Battle of Pale Pass against the Saisi. There are several sources saying that the Saisi were looking for a dragonborn and stopped when they found Roman. And as well as the Saisi forming the basis of the blades, this allowed Roman to unify Cyrodiil from most accounts, using the Saisi as the deciding element in any conflict. At the end of that, he's also considered, quote, responsible for the Northern Kingdoms, which I'm assuming means High Rock and Skyrim, if you believe the first edition of the Pocket Guide to the Empire. Uh, note that responsible for isn't quite the same thing as ruling over, and it wasn't really until the time of Roman II that the Manish provinces were truly under the control of the Empire, and Roman Cyrodiil didn't use the title of Emperor at all, and nor did Alessia actually, so now I think about it, the title of Cyrodiilic Emperor at all didn't exist until Roman II, or possibly Roman's direct successor, Kastav. I wouldn't necessarily take the traditional account at its word, however, because with the pocket guide, it has zero reasons to paint Roman in a bad light, um, and potentially it can use Roman to help legitimise Tiber Septim as well, which is a very, very present concern within the pocket guide, and it also misses out much of the emphasis on his being dragonborn that we find in other texts, and suggests instead that Roman allowed the Akaviri to stay to bolster his fighters against possible aggression from the elves. Uh, they also contributed, the Stacey also contributed several elements to the Imperial Legions, which were much more efficient thanks to the use of Akaviri techniques. And the introduction of the Akaviri potentates as political advisors happened from the first emperor from what we can tell, and they would outlast the entire Roman dynasty. Although he didn't conquer all of Tamriel, it seems like Roman may have got involved with adventures into space as well. The third edition of the Pocket Guide notes that there were expeditions made to Aetherius during, quote, the Roman dynasty, although it doesn't say precisely when. I think the rule of Roman II fits the bill the best personally, but if we go by a forum post that Michael Kirkbride made discussing plans for lunar colonies made by the Roman dynasty, then the space exploration began during Roman I's rule and then carried on throughout Castav's rule into the rule of Roman II. If you want to check out what that is, look up Tatadamalian with regards to the Elder Scrolls. There'll be a link in the blog post that's accompanying this cast directly to that thread. It's a, it's a small piece, but it's an interesting little nugget. And in the absence of firmer dates, um, I think that's probably as close to confirmation for when all the space exploration happened as we're going to get.
And as well as being into all sorts of weird stuff from body control, orgies, and jetting off into Aetherius, Roman was very into his ceremonial as well. The text Varieties of Faith claims that he's the one who solidified the ceremonies of the Dragonfires and the Amulet of Kings, which means that he understood about the power of ceremony and symbolism. And this means that he could very well have constructed most of his mythology, in fairness, as he understood precisely how it all works, the power of myth, what it means to have something thoroughly legitimized by ceremony, and so on and so forth. So, Roman Cyrodiil is either pretty much a demigod born out of the land and symbolizing the future, or he's a very shrewd and brilliant tactician and propagandist, and both of those make for very good emperors. It's just a shame that he didn't really have a great successor. Despite the connection from the name, Roman II was not next in line, but he was followed, as I mentioned, by Castav, who seems to have strained relations between Cyrodiil and its various protectorates, if I can use that term. Um, he demanded that more people were supposed to be conscripted into the Imperial Army, and this inspired a revolt in Skyrim. He was apparently deposed by Roman II, who was allegedly Roman Cyrodiil's grandson, although quite how much I believe that, given his method of seizing the throne, I'm not really sure. Um, again, regardless of how he got there, Roman II instigated a period that has been called a golden age in a few texts, this was accompanied by wars that would see all of Tamriel subdued in various ways, apart from Morrowind. Although, in fairness, the degree to which we can call the Somerset Isles and Black Marsh conquered is debatable. There's notes in the first edition of the Pocket Guide from an Altma that remarks, quote, There shall be no accommodation as with Roman. This implies that there was something like a ceasefire rather than actively taking the place over, but the guide itself does note that only the Imperial Ambassador was permitted onto the Somerset Isles, and even then only into Alanor. So, even from that, we can see that it wasn't being completely steamrolled to the point where the Ultima can do, had to do it wasn't being completely steamrolled to the point where the Ultma had to do whatever the Roman Empire asked of them. Roman II also invaded Black Marsh, uh, which initiated the Blackwater War. This lasted for 20-something years and stopped when the Argonians decided to stop fighting. They literally just put their tools down, they literally just put their weapons down, buried them, and went back to farming. Uh, no official end of the war was made, there was no signing of any treaties or anything, but Roman declared the province annexed two years after the cessation of hostilities, and constructed a series of garrison fortresses around the edges of Black Marsh, and then just called it a day. Tiber Septim would do pretty much exactly the same thing for his conquest of Black Marsh later. There's been no real conquest of the whole of the province at any point in Tamriel's history. 
Morrowind was the last big thorn in the side for Raman, though, which would ultimately finish the Raman dynasty off entirely. Uh, the four-score war uh, would get rid of whatever stock of money and stability that Raman II had built up, and the war outlasted him. The war carried on through the next two rulers and was ended by the first Akaviri potentate, Vasidu Shai, following his assassination of Raman III. The war itself and the way it drained resources probably contributed to the instability that the potentate experienced and the need for the Sifim, which would later become the Fighters Guild. So, some of the stuff that happened during the potentate era was probably the Raman's fault as well. And on that note, I think we're going to end it there through this rather whistle-stop tour through the Raman dynasty. But I did want to close on a random little note that although the only emperors we've really talked about here are called Raman, there were others. We've mentioned Castav briefly, and there's also Brazolus Dor, who ruled between Raman II and Raman III. There's part of me that thinks that Raman may almost have been a posthumous title or something that was given to rulers after Raman Cyrodiil, who himself took the name Cyrodiil to symbolise his collection to the land. And if that's the case, then Raman, which literally means light of man, as I said earlier, is more a title than a name. And I also think there's a pun in there somehow. Raman, if you mispronounce it or pronounce it a different way, Rayman, Rays, Light, I, I think that's what they were aiming at, then it could potentially be more of a title than a name. And in the same way that we have various European rulers being called the Great, um, either, I can't remember whether there's any that called that during their reign, now I say that, or whether that's just a posthumous title as well, but that's purely my speculation. And that's pretty much everything that I've got to say on the Raman dynasty. Their founder was an incredible character who instituted several things that persist throughout much of the Empire's history, as well as being some of the most interesting links to the broader mythology and cosmology of the Elder Scrolls. If I'm honest, his successors are a bit of a letdown, which is why I spent most of the time talking about Raman Cyrodiil. Although Raman II, as the conqueror of almost all of Tamriel, did pull off something that made the idea of a unified continent a possibility, which is impressive in itself and vaguely reminds me of the way Chinese emperors tended to work. And Raman III, we probably have the fullest picture of him as a character, at least if you believe Karlovac Townway's 2920 series, but otherwise he just carried on his predecessor's war and got more and more paranoid about what his wife was plotting to do to him rather than really achieving much, apart from getting killed by the Morag Tong. And that's it for this week. Thank you ever so much for joining me. If you want to catch me rambling a bit more randomly while I play Morrowind, then follow me at twitch.tv forward slash Aramithius. I stream on Friday evenings UK time. So tune in there where we talk about whatever lore we come across in the games and just come up with some fantastic new revelations as we go through i've learned some brilliant things while i've been going through talking through things with people in chat as well so please do join us for that and if you want anything in particular answered 
on the next edition of this podcast, then send me an email at writteninuncertaintypodcast at gmail.com and I will do my best to respond to it in the episode. That being said, next time in two weeks' time is the question and response episode. Is the question and response episode. And until then, this podcast remains a letter written in uncertainty. You've been listening to Written in Uncertainty, a podcast written and presented by Aramithius. The music for this podcast has been kindly provided by Jan Glembotsky. Check them out on SoundCloud under Songs from the Lost Land, and I'll see you next time. Are you worried you don't have all the answers? Have you ever found yourself in an internet rabbit hole? Call Call Mystery Mystery Time Time Live today! It's a new detective business. With plenty of heart. And a questionable track record. We're only in the office for an hour. Every Wednesday. Come hang out. Solve a mystery. It's a podcast. It's a live show. It's a swell time. Subscribe Subscribe now. now! Producers of Mysteries Highlight and Asking Finding not taking advice for guidance of the host because they have no idea what they're doing. No mysteries will actually be fully solved unless it's written by a spontaneous outside source or sheer luck. You can find them live on the Twitch app and find their podcast later on YouTube, Anchor, Spotify, Google, and iTunes. Listening may cause hurtful your death or loss of sanity. We are sorry. This is probably legally binding and you cannot sue us. Hey friends, this is Robots, the creator of the Robots Radio Podcast Network and host of the two original shows on the network, the Fallout Lorecast and the Elder Scrolls Lorecast. These two shows have rocketed up the iTunes charts. They both together have over 155 star reviews in only a couple of months with bite-sized episodes that take you step-by-step through the background of the games and the game worlds. They're thought-provoking, well-produced, and a lot of fun. I recommend you go check them out at robotsradio.net or on any podcast reader, podcatcher whatever you use itunes spotify again that's the fallout lorecast and the elder scrolls lorecast available everywhere